Hello and welcome to another episode of the Wisdom of Friends podcast. Thank Thank you for tuning in. If this is your first time listening, then thanks for coming. This is a podcast where you get to learn more about your friends and community, their wisdom, their trials and tribulations, timeless insights and their secrets. Now, let's get into the show. Please welcome your host, Cal Aras. Hello, folks, and welcome to Season 5 of uh, Wisdom of Friends Show. I'm your host, Cal Ross, and today I'm really excited to be introducing you to a good friend of mine. His name is Eric Ellefson. Eric is a learning and development leader focused on delivering evidence-based training solutions that build skills to meet business needs. Currently, he's a global learning design leader at Ernst & Young, a big four professional services firm, where he develops learning design processes and standards to ensure a high-quality learner experience. Over the past 20 years, he has served in a variety of learning roles at Kaplan Education, ITT Corporation, Healthways, TerraBeam, and AT&T. Prior to that, he served as an officer in the U.S. Navy. He has earned his PhD in Educational Technology from the University of Northern Colorado, MA from the University of Colorado, and BA from the University of California, Berkeley. Friends, this is a fascinating conversation, and Eric and I talk about the elements that go into delivering a message to your audience, the important elements that makes you effective as a workshop and a seminar leader, and finally, the future of education and technology. I hope you enjoyed this conversation as much as I did. So without further ado, let's welcome the one and only Eric Ellefson. So good evening, Eric. Uh, welcome to uh, the Wisdom of Friends show. And I'm really excited and uh, delighted that you took the time to be on this program. And uh, let me start off with my first impressions of you. We met almost a year ago at the Kirkland Toastmasters meeting. And what I found, what well, the first impression of you that I noticed was that you had such a wonderful demeanor about your very positive presence and your speeches were concise, well thought out. And then you always left the audience with a really impactful message. And I knew when we were doing the show that having you on the program would really make a difference. I'm glad that you took the time to be on this show. So welcome to the show. Well, thank you, Cal. I'm uh, honored to be here and, and uh, really looking forward to it. Excellent, Eric. So one of the ways uh, we kick off our show is by asking our guest a very simple yet profound question. And that is, what is your favorite quote or philosophy that you live by? And how have you applied it to your life? Well, you don't start easy, do you? <laughs> no, that's uh, no, that's a, that's a great question. Um, you know, and I think you know, I think codes like that that they they you don't instantly adopt them. You don't uh, get handed that code when you're 18 years old or 21 or you know uh, have achieved adulthood. But it's something that you you sort of groom and nurture throughout your life. Um, the, the, I would say if there's a philosophy that that I try to adhere to, it's it's really about service. I think it, it's about service to others and and the value and the importance of community. Somebody recently, I was in a in a lecture or seminar, and and uh, someone made the point. They said, 
you know, when, when we think about how we go about our lives and what we consider our measures of success, some people say, well, you know, it's how, much, how many toys you collect. We've all heard that. Uh, certainly, people have put uh, things like their, their wealth, their, uh, their status, their stature, their, what, what level they achieved on the, on the ladder of success, what, what level in the company that, that they were working on. But, you know, another way to look at it was this quote that someone said, you know, if, if we look at how we define winning, we don't win unless we all win. And what, the, what they meant by that was, if, if you're, you're in it, we're all in a community. And, and if you personally are successful by any of the measures that I just mentioned, um, that, that's one thing. But really, it's people around you, if, if they all win, if they all have achieved something, if they all have their basic needs met, if they have food, shelter, um, if, if they are if they achieve some level of success, only then can we all win. So we, we really, really sets a high bar, and, and it really takes us outside of our own uh, personal um, greed uh, and our own personal measures of success to look at how, how, we, how we all win as a community. No, I really like that and appreciate you mentioning that because I think uh, what I'm hearing in your sharing here is that you know, it's more than just me. It's about we as a community. And it's, uh, it's one thing to be successful as a lone rider. But, you know, it's a whole other experience and a joyful uh, experience, if you will, if you can take the community along with you. And that's really true service as to how you can contribute to other people. And, and what I'm really uh, fascinated and curious about is, you know, you have accomplished uh, quite a bit on your own. I mean, you've earned a PhD in educational technology from University of Northern Cal- Colorado. You got an MA as well as a BA from University of California, Berkeley. So you have gotten really some really good credentials. And a person at this level of uh, having achieved this accomplishments, when, uh, you know, when you have this kind of opinion about service and community, you know, it really means something. It's a lesson for all of us to realize that it's not about going on and achieving those credentials. Yes, it is important, but really what makes a difference eventually is uh, how you've contributed to uh, the community. And so that brings up another question, Eric, and what I'm curious about is uh, where did you grow up and how would you describe your childhood uh, and what did your parents do and how did that shape your life? Yeah, great question. I, uh, I grew up in the San Francisco Bay Area, the South Bay, in San Jose, Santa Clara. Fairly middle class um, upbringing. My parents were both teachers. My father was a professor of geography at San Jose State University, where he uh, taught for 40 years. My mother was a music teacher, and she had been teaching for, in, in the, her whole career, about 30 years or so, teaching music. So I was raised by these two teachers, and... Uh, interestingly, they, they challenged me and, and my sisters as we were growing up, and they were constantly teaching throughout. I remember we would take long road trips. We would drive the length of the country, go from California to Maine and back. And my dad and mom were always asking us questions as we looked out the window. They were never ones to, to let us sort of drift away and, and read a book or something. They always wanted us to be learning about the environment that we were driving through. So dad would ask 
know, what, what do you think about that mountain there? How do you think that got formed? Why, why are there trees on the north side of that slope, but not trees on the south side of the slope? And then, of course, as we were young at the time, we would make some guesses, and he would, he would try to shape us to, to come up with the answers. He wouldn't give us the answer. He would, he would, he would say, well, you know, use the sort of the Socratic method. Well, yeah, but if that's true, what about this? Did you consider that? Um, and, and then he would give little hints along the way. What I would later learn as a learning professional was called scaffolding, where you try to meet the learner where they are by giving them the support that they need to get to a certain level, and then you bring them the rest of the way. And as they get more and more proficient at something, you remove the scaffolding progressively, and they're doing more and more of the, of the skill or the task themselves. I didn't realize that he was doing that, or, or my, both my parents were doing that at the time, uh, but only later realized it. So uh, had a pretty middle-class upbringing. Um, it really had everything that I needed, though, to, to succeed. Uh, was sent to pretty good schools, really good schools. Um, I had a good environment, uh, a very safe environment, but one where I could play and, and, and explore and, uh, and, and really uh, blossom, I think, as a person. Got sent to a, a fantastic university at University of California at Berkeley, you know, really one of the premier institutions. Um, and then from there, joined the Navy immediately afterwards, uh, and I literally sailed the world uh, on an aircraft carrier. I was a uh, naval flight officer, a systems operator on a carrier-based jet, and uh, got to see the world and explore and, and fly around at high speeds and fly in some really outstanding places, uh, including, say, over the Great Pyramids of Egypt and low over the, over the southern France and uh, through Brazil and Panama, Norway. Uh, just, just some fantastic experiences. And, uh, and then was given all kinds of opportunities after that to explore uh, my life as a as a learning professional. No, this is so great, and <clears throat> and I want to kind of go back and uh, to what you said earlier about the Socratic learning approach. And I'm a big fan of asking questions, and and you know it, it's so amazing that at a very early age you had that experience with your dad. And you know, as the saying goes, great leaders ask great questions, and so. So my next question to you is, really, I mean, did you always know that uh, the U.S. Navy was something that you always wanted to do, or how did that choice or how did that decision uh, happen for you? Like, was it right after Berkeley, did you know, okay, this is what I'm committed to doing, or was it something that, was there a story around it? That's what I'm curious about. Yeah, yeah. Well, I would like to tell you that I was born and raised to, you know, to, to join the military, join the Navy. That's something I always wanted to do. But, you know, life's interesting. It, it doesn't always work that way. You come across these forks in the road and, and things happen and you go off and you explore some brand new world. And that's kind of the way it happened for me in the Navy. I, I knew I wanted to travel and I knew I wanted to see the world. I actually, at that point in my life, was an English major and I wanted to become a writer, I knew that I hadn't really experienced anything outside of this sort of middle-class, suburban lifestyle in the South Bay of San Francisco. And I knew I would have to, to get more seasoning, if you will, in order to write great works, or to write anything for that matter. 
And so I decided I was going to go join the military. I, I first went and sat at the ROTC office for the Air Force. And uh, I was given a chair. They were very polite. And they said, you know, wait here for a while. And I waited and I waited. And the, the, the guy I was supposed to see, he was busy and he was more busy. And it was, I think I probably waited there 45 minutes or so. And to be honest, I, I, I just got up at one point and I, I told the, the secretary there, I said, I've, I've got other things I've got to do. I've got to get to class. And I left. The next day, I was in the same vicinity and I sat and I went over to the Navy office and sat there and, and said, I'd like to, to interview or talk to somebody about joining the, the Navy, Navy ROTC. And they said, oh, yeah, come right in. And this guy took me into his office, and he was very excited about it, and, uh, and that was, <laughs> was all it took. And all of a sudden, I was uh, on my way to, to becoming a naval officer. So, so life, uh, life, life doesn't always happen in, uh, in the way that you might think or in a way that's that planned, but... I think you have to leave a little bit of, of um, something at, at random and, and let yourself go with that if it, if it seems like the right thing to do. Absolutely, and that's what we call an adventurous life. It's, uh, you know, you plan something, but you should always be ready for something that is totally unexpected, and it could lead to some new opportunities that, uh, you know, uh, the, the finite mind may not have considered it. And uh, so the universe is always... Uh, Offering new opportunities, and uh, it's it's a way of trying to be receptive to those. And so, from the Navy, I understand. Uh, so you went on to uh, in the field of global learning and uh, training and development. Now, was that a conscious choice, or was that an opportunity that just came by, or how did that happen? A little of both on that one, Cal. In my Navy career, after I had uh, finished up my first sea tour with the Navy. I was given a, a shore tour, as most people are, and that shore tour was to teach the ROTC at the ROTC unit at the University of Colorado in Boulder, and that was a that was a fantastic opportunity, and and it gave me a chance now to to do something that I had always thought about doing, which was teaching. Obviously, and growing up as as a, the son of two teachers, it, it seemed pretty natural, and and it was, and and I really loved it. I really loved, and all teachers will tell you this, loved the, the light bulb coming on uh, when, when you look out and, and, and you're lecturing and you see students really getting it and finding a way to connect with them. That's, that's just a wonderful feeling, and I'm pretty sure it, it's the thing that, that drives a lot of people into teaching. And I also, as I was teaching, I was always wondering, what are some better ways to teach? How can I relate to these students in a better way, help them with their understanding in a way that goes beyond just the lecture and the and the questioning and, of course, all the other things they do, assignments and homework and study and, and tests and so forth. And it struck me that, and this is something that happened simultaneously with my teaching, I was getting a master's degree at the time, in, uh, in the field of geography, believe it or not. So now I was, I was changing my, my, my subject matter a little bit. And I was studying uh, the, the geophysical properties of sea ice in, in the North Sea, a place where I had flown and, and watched sea ice form and, and watched it move um, around in the, the Iceland area, north of, north of Iceland in the Barents Strait and, and uh, northwest of Norway. 
And I was given a mini-computer at the time, or one to use anyway. This is at a time now when people had very primitive home computers, right? The Apple Macintosh had just come out, and, and I had the privilege to work on, a, on this mini-computer, which was a, a workstation that had incredible power. Probably nothing like we have today, but at the time it was incredible power. And it allowed me to put in some different variables into the computer and watch a graphical representation of the ice moving. And so I sat there and I hypothesized and said, well, what if I applied a wind from this direction from at this force and I would watch the ice change, this graphical representation. And I said, well, what if pressure was different and we had a front over here and then the ice was doing this and it was such and such density, what would happen then? And I watched it move and I realized this was pretty incredible. What, what if we gave this power to learners to be able to sit at a computer, not to go through a lecture, what we call today a page turner, where you, where you look at screen after screen after screen of text, just reading it. That's really not really any different than reading a book. But that's what has passed for computer-based education or, or e-learning, as we call it now, for years. But what about exploring the, the interactive power of the computer to help learners and to let them hypothesize? Well, what if, say, I'm studying physics and, and I want to look at the relationship between pressure and temperature um, and volume of a gas, and if I turn up the heat and I, and I put more temperature in, what happens to pressure in that case? And then they can play these scenarios out and really explore the subject matter and do it all on their own in a self-directed way on the computer. That, was, that, that blew my mind. And, and it really was interesting because that was just about the time that, the, that e-learning or online learning uh, was coming into its into its own. It, interestingly, then I I went up the road from Boulder, where I was, to the town of Greeley, where the University of Northern Colorado is, and they have the charter for higher education for uh, what they call educational technology and a lot of the the um, advanced degrees in education in the state of Colorado. And I studied educational technology there and. Uh, pursued and achieved uh, a Ph.D. in educational technology, looking at the power of, of e-learning, as well as overall the, the how you design instruction, um, given some objective that you've got, how do you engineer that so that learners can consistently achieve a new skill. And so I, I went through that program there. It was fantastic. Um, I, I did get to play with some of the at the time, the, the, the latest and greatest software for creating e-learning, and, and that launched me into, my, into the career I have today. No, that is fantastic. It's really an incredible story. And uh, so what I'm hearing is there was a fascination for the first time you got a computer and saw some graphic imagery on the computer screen and using some variables, you were able to actually uh, look at different simulations and that really picked your interest. And then that led to, uh, you know, pursuing uh, a calling with educational technology. And, uh, and here we are. And for the benefit of the audience, Eric Ellefson is a learning and development leader focused on delivering evidence-based training solutions that build skills to meet business needs 
Currently, he's a global learning design leader at Ernst & Young, which is a big four professional services firm. And uh, so that brings up another question. And I want to kind of go back to also your 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 passion, which was when you were pursuing your undergrad at University of California, Berkeley, you mentioned that, you know, you wanted to be a writer. Now, have you pursued writing since then? Or has it uh, been put on a back burner or what's the story there? Yeah. Well, I've certainly written a lot as, as we all do in business, right? It's, it's just such an essential skill. I haven't written anything of, of fiction. Well, and I should maybe caveat that a little bit. I haven't written any individual works of fiction, uh, but I've written, I've written a fair amount in writing scenarios uh, for for simulations and other demonstrations with within the learning sphere so for instance when we um, create a video or or a simulation now we always have to paint a picture for the learner to to put them in the right context right we have to specify where they are what are the what uh, what's the situation here you are, you're, you're at the workplace, uh, let's say in my current work, we're, we're doing a lot on, on how to uh, provide feedback to somebody. So you might put you, yourself in a scenario, it may be a difficult situation, a challenging conversation where the feedback is, is tricky and uh, you have to write a certain amount to get the learner in the mood um, so that they're really immersed, so that it's an authentic situation for them. They can really relate to it. This isn't just some, um, you know, test question that they have to answer, but, but something that you, where you're really immersing them in the scenario. And, and you have to write those things. And I, I've written a fair number of them. I've also supervised a, a, a lot of instructional designers who, who do that kind of work every day. So I would say, yeah, I, I do a fair amount of writing uh, along those lines, um, in addition to, of course, more... Training and development material. And so uh, do you have any interest in uh, someday writing a book or a novel or uh, anything of that sort? I do. Probably the, the, the book that's in me right now, though, is, is a textbook in instructional design. So when I, when I look at some of the textbooks that are out there, some are very good. Um, but, uh, but others, I think, uh, lack some of the maybe some of the experience that I think I've gained over the last 20 years in the corporate learning world and, and instructional design. So, uh, yeah, I think I could write an instructional design textbook, um, possibly with others. And that, that's, that's the book that's sitting within me right now. That is so great. And, uh, and one thing that I'm also curious about, and I am really uh, fascinated by what, what you have to share here as far as uh, educational uh, technology and the online e-learning courses. And uh, what I'm curious about, uh, Eric, is do you think the online classes are the future of education? And how will this traditional educational model expand to handle online courses? And uh, who do you think will be the winners and losers in this new era of education, if you will, in the next five to ten years? Uh, That's a fantastic question. And we've seen a lot of for-profit universities and non-profit universities going with a model of pure e-learning. Um, some of them do blend in office hours by an instructor. Others blend in a 
uh, say a one hour or two hour seminar uh, online with over the phone, for instance, uh, supplemented with a lot of of e-learning. The way I think it should go, and I'm not sure that it will go this way economically, but there, there is no single delivery channel that I think works best. I think they work best in concert with one another. Um, I think for, to, for the acquisition of brand new information, you're sitting there, you, you don't know about some concepts, some principles, some process. Some of the best ways to get that information are through self-directed means, meaning reading, meaning uh, e-learning, something online, and being able to sh- see a demonstration or multiple examples of something, some concept or some principle or, or procedure. Once you've got that, and by the way, the, the reason that self-directed learning is so good for that is that we, we do tend to learn at different speeds because we all come into a subject with different levels of prior knowledge of that thing. Some of us have more, some have less. Uh, we have different levels of motivation behind it. And so it makes sense that if you have some medium that you can control, like a video, for instance, and you're not getting it at first, you can hit the play button again and again and again because the computer is infinitely patient with somebody. And if you want to get more, a different explanation or more examples, you hit the more examples button and you get more of those. But if you don't need those things, then you, you pass it on and you go quicker through. Right now, our system of education, which used to rely on lectures, is really a one-size-fits-all approach lectures begin at a certain time, lectures end at a certain time. And they assume that we, we all, we as students all get it at the exact same time and at the exact same pace, but we know that's not true. So self-paced methods are great. Now, that's not the, that's not the end of the game, though. We still have to do things like practice. We have to practice with this new skill. And there are various ways to do that. Some of them are online, and that's great. You similar to the, uh, the simulations that I mentioned earlier in our talk. And some of them are practice that we can do in more of a group environment where we're practicing with others, for instance, role play uh, or, or some other uh, exercises that involve multiple people, maybe someone evaluating others uh, playing a, a, uh, an educational game, but, but doing it in a, in a group environment with, under the tutelage of, a, a qualified instructor who's watching and giving instant feedback into your into your uh, practice. So that's really vital. So it changes the classroom. The classroom is no longer a place for lecture only. It's really more for this interactive element with your with your peers, reflecting on what you've learned, having to explain something in your own words back to the instructor or back to your peer group. That's wonderful to do in, in a classroom environment. And then there's this whole aspect now of social learning where we can go online and we can reflect uh, with, our, with a cohort of our peers and people can offer examples of their work. Hey, look what I did out in the world. I was, uh, I was learning something about sales and uh, here's what I did. Uh, I took a video of myself giving a sales pitch and you, you offer it up to your social learning group, for instance. They all look at it and say, yeah, yeah, that was pretty good, but you know, here's some recommendations on how you could fix that or change that. And here's what I did, and you can see what other learners are doing. Or you can see um, 
materials that the that the instructor has has posted online and things that help you to uh, to carry that skill out and and to perform it in the world under you know to apply it so with this is kind of a mixture of 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 um, delivery channels and i think that is really where the future of education is and and i again whether it can be monetized uh for for higher education or not i'm not sure but i think it's really probably the most effective way to go and definitely and i think uh, you know we see all these uh, advent of uh, online uh courses and sites that offer some incredible high quality education like the Khan's Academy and then you have all these online courses at MIT and Harvard and uh, you know pretty much all the major universities now have this distance learning program which is as you mentioned it's a hybrid of uh, online e-learning courses along with uh, instruction and classroom learning and I think uh, what what i'm also hearing is the advantages here or the biggest winners are really the students who are willing and eager to do the work to use the online uh, classes as a platform to connect and as you said the social media aspect of it and to really hone their problem solving and leadership skills now that that is really great and i'm really excited about uh, you know with the direction of this uh, new era of education uh, system evolves because if you look at today's uh, current state of affairs and you know a student could go through an undergrad program and uh, come out of it with incredible uh, levels of debt and uh, so what what's what are your thoughts on that do you think uh, traditional college is necessary anymore with the you know with the advent of uh, e-learning courses everywhere and that you could literally uh, do self-learning and get all the knowledge and education that you need or what's your take on the necessity of having going to college anymore. Yeah, I think theoretically, Cal, it's it's not necessary to to go through the the sort of the traditional college model. Whether it's important to do so for other reasons, though, it remains to be seen. One of them, of course, uh, is is as a means to to network, um, to uh, to to gain. Uh, knowledge about how other people um, are are working, um, uh, and and of course, you know, places of employment are looking at that at that credential at that pedigree. They figure, well, hey, if you got into that Ivy League school, you got into the you know University of California Berkeley, you must really know your stuff, and so we're going to hire you based on that on that narrow acceptance rate that some of those higher-end universities have. Um, I, think, I think there's going to be a time, and we don't know when it is, though, that, that hiring practices change and start to really look at what people have learned and what they've taken away um, instead of just that, just that piece of parchment. Um, I hate to say that because, again, I'm a product of that, that very uh, institution, and so uh, you know, I, everything in me wants to say no it's uh it, you, you have to go through that traditional type of schooling but i also see those schools it, they are changing they are slowly changing and realizing that that they can deliver their instruction in in multiple ways and and so i think it's just a matter of time before they before they do more of that and of course they are attracting um and any good university is attracting top faculty which uh can, you can relate to on a whole bunch of different 
um, planes, uh, getting to know them personally, um, working with them, getting individual feedback uh, from them, I think is, is vital. Do you get the same level of treatment in, a, in an online university? Um, right now, probably not, I would, I would say. Um, in some cases, you do, depends on the model, but if it's, if it's purely online where there is no instructor, everything is delivered over the computer, I don't think you're getting that, that level of, of personal treatment. I also, these days, don't think we're at a place where artificial intelligence is, has, has achieved everything it's going to achieve. We're going to get to a point here someday where AI really gets into the picture and can really understand you as a learner, can know exactly what you know and what you don't know, and develop that model and adapt the instruction that it delivers to you uh, dynamically um, based on where you are at the moment. If your confidence is low, it, it works on your confidence. If, if your skill on a particular principle in math, say, is, uh, is low, it works on that for you and finds the best way to, to teach. Um, I, think, I think we're just really at the beginning of that kind of, of e-learning. And when it comes, it's, it's going to be very powerful. Yeah, that's a, that's a great point, and uh, you know it's a really exciting technology ahead of us. And uh, uh, and and the other point also to consider is with all this uh, online e-learning programs, now you opened up the channels to students and uh, people who previously may not have had access to some of the top universities. Now somebody in uh, you know some remote corner of Africa or Asia could now access some really high quality education. And in today's globally connected economy with uh, technology being so widely available and constantly improving every year. I think that's really uh, going to change the dynamic of education. And as you said, uh, with the uh, you know advent of AI and robotics, and that's, uh, yeah, that's going to bring a whole other dimension to this learning process. Now, that's so great. Uh, I'm going to switch gears here and uh, want to ask you the next question. And this is uh, more about... Uh, you know, just just a general success, a breakthrough success moment. And uh, you know, when you look back at your life, was there like a moment in your life uh, which was a breakthrough moment? And what I mean by that is, it was a turning point. In other words, life was never the same again. Moment for you? Is there any particular incident comes to mind that uh, you know just changed the trajectory of your life or your career? <laughs> Well, I can I could probably not give you the the uh, penultimate uh, experience, but I can give you several small experiences that have that have changed things. So I mentioned earlier that I had joined the Navy, and uh, when you're in the Navy, there are several specialties that you can pursue: submarines, surface ships, aviation, being the three primary ones for for a new person entering the service for the first time. And I remember, and this was a, I was about um, 20 years old and didn't know much about the Navy at this point, but I was given an option to go down to Miramar, California. Yes, it's where Top Gun was filmed. And I was assigned for three days to the Navy uh, Fighter Weapons School Aggressor Squadron. So they were flying the, a small plane, single-engine plane called the A-4 Skyhawk, and their duty was to, just like in the movie, was to simulate what 
Russian MiGs were flying with it, using the same tactics. And uh, they they put me in a flight suit and a G suit and all the survival equipment and a harness. Uh, put me in the back seat of this uh, of this A4, rolled down the runway, and uh, we went out over the uh, Pacific Ocean and and did dogfighting with uh, several F-14 Tomcats. I wow. was <laughs> I, I had been. I had yeah I had been to the Cirque, I had been to the fair I had been on various roller coasters but never in my life had I experienced something like this and I, I got out of the plane at the end and I just I knew I had to fly I had to fly for the Navy uh, it was just uh, it was an un, unreal experience it was just simply the very best thing that I, I thought I'd ever done in my life at that point. No, that's, so that, that's that's one. Yeah, it's great, really good, really inspiring, and uh, yeah. Was there something else you wanted to add on? Or I think the second one is not so much an event, but and it's, it's also something we touched on. It was when I discovered uh, was more to learn about instruction. Um, and when I went to, and, and pursued my, my Ph.D. in educational technology, there's something when you, when you get into a field and you start reading about it and you realize that you're, you're reading and studying far into the night, far beyond when you were tired, and you're just absolutely enthralled. You're absolutely engrossed in the subject. You realize this is for you. This is something you're in the flow state. You're... Your your captured time has has melted away. You don't have real have no realization of the passage of time, and I think when that happens for you, as it did for me when I when I started studying uh, instructional design and educational technology, then uh, then I, then I knew that I was I was landing in the right place. And I, unfortunately, not everyone can can feel that. Um, people are are in jobs sometimes that they just they they do for the money and they, they go nine to five and that's fine. You know, they, they work their, their five day work week and they're glad when the, the week's end. Um, and I, but I've had times and I think a lot of us have had times when we get into something that we're really, really interested in. Uh, that time is no, not a factor anymore. It, time just slips away. And that's what happened to me in, uh, in instruction. That's absolutely a great point. And it's uh, so important. And as you said, there are fortunate few who can find that calling of the, you know the passion and it's like a joseph campbell said follow your bliss and uh no that's really a great point and i want to take a walk down the memory lane here eric and uh wanted to ask you who are your mentors growing up or were there any specific people in the military or uh growing up that influenced you or you want to give a shout out to you? yeah sure i uh, i was very fortunate in my uh, my youth to uh, go to a Jesuit high school in San Jose, California, called Bellarmine Bellarmine College Prep, and uh, it was a place that that molded us uh, and really set us on the right path. Um, probably half, maybe a little less than half, of our instructors were, were Jesuit priests, um, and the other half, or a little bit more, were were the lay faculty. But they were all extremely dedicated. Um, there was a, a particular priest, uh, Father Dennis Alvarez, who uh, I learned a great deal from, and he was just intensely curious about things and uh, and really related to us on a great level. Um, 
a professor or a, excuse me a teacher of mine, uh, Bill Healy, my uh, English teacher in several courses, was uh, was uh, a, a good mentor and a friend, and um, so yeah, I really really uh, really remember them. Um, in my in my work career, I've I've run across several uh, mentors. Um, and uh, they've given me all kinds of advice on life, on work, on the future, on on directions. Um, one of the whom I've, I was actually uh, a woman who was my dissertation advisor, and I ran into her years later, and she hired me, uh, and is currently my boss, uh, Brenda Sugru. She. Um, has, has been my mentor now on and off for over 20 years. Um, she's a, a very successful uh, chief learning officer at, uh, at Ernst & Young, EY. Um, she has held a variety of positions uh, in the learning and development field. She, is, is, she challenges me and others um, to, to go above and beyond to really not settle for mediocrity. Um, she really sets a very high bar, uh, and she teaches and continues to teach. So I, I met her 20 years ago at the university. Uh, she continues to teach me today, um, and, uh, and my, my hat's off to her. Well, that's so great. And... Uh you know, it's uh, learning and mentoring and having these uh, right people at the right time in our lives can make such a profound difference, and it can certainly uh, change the trajectory of our career. And uh, yeah, it's uh, it's definitely uh, you know a blessed uh, opportunity to have good teachers along the way. Uh, that brings up our next question. And you know, Eric, as you know, like we've had many guests on the show, and most of these people have been really incredibly successful, and. Uh, well, one of the things that trends that uh, we have noticed is, you know, no matter what kind of failures or setbacks these uh, folks have experienced in life, you know, they, an average person would look at it and say that was a failure, but they would look at it and say that was just a stepping stone towards even a greater challenge or a success. So my question to you is, what were one or two biggest challenges that you faced in your life? And how did you overcome it? And most importantly, what lessons uh, did you uh, learn from them that helped you navigate life going forward? Well, that's uh, that is a very interesting question. I, I guess first of all, my my initial reaction to that is I I'm sure there are some places where I have failed, and 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 if I were to ask uh, my wife or, or others around me, they'd probably tell me that there are many many of those places. Um, but none of them are are really reaching out to me right now. Um, I mean, there there are some places that, that small small blips. I think uh, on that I've seen. Um, I remember actually going through and again going back to my Navy days and Navy flight school and having some initial challenges with uh, with early navigation exercises, for instance, and uh, and just sitting back and and saying taking taking stock of of myself and uh of of what i uh what i was and and my own my own self image and and realizing that you know i had the skills i had 
the the ability and all I had to do was was rethink and reframe the problem uh, and come up with uh, with with the right answer and then succeed from there and I and I, I think really that's probably uh, the pattern that I've that I've felt in in a lot of different things where where I've had a challenge maybe had a failure um, to to realize what first of all um, taking stock of, of what you've got you you do have the skills to do this you've got the the, the mental aptitude for it but secondly sitting sitting back and saying i i don't i can't worry about my image i can't worry about what this looks like to myself or others of this failure i have to look at what what can i learn what what should i learn from the challenge and the failure and really take stock and, and do a postmortem, as, as I think you know a lot of us do in uh, after every major project in in industry today. Uh, do a postmortem and, and decide what 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 what, what worked well uh, and what what didn't work well. Um, I guess I'm I'm going back to Navy stories because I learned so much in the Navy when I went through flight school. When we we went through flight school, there was a, a checklist that the instructor would fill out at the end of every flight. And they would rate you in a whole bunch of different things, airmanship, navigation, communication, um, checklists, you know, use of the cockpit and so forth. And uh, they, they would rate you. They'd give you either an above or a below or, or not observed, which was terrible. Um, and I had an instructor early on who we sat down in, in the debrief at the end of the flight and he said, listen, I'm not going to sit here and tell you all the things you did right, because you did so many things right. But the only way you're going to learn is if I show you the things that you, you didn't do well. So I don't want you to focus on them as these are failures, but rather these are places where you can learn. These are places where you can get better. And, uh, and, and I think I've taken a lot of things in that vein. Uh, even though your ego originally tells you, hey, you failed, you should feel terrible about that, um, and, and we all do it, but but I think we have to bounce back quickly from that and say no, it's not it's not about that. It's not about my image. It's about what I can learn going forward. No, that is such a great point, and it's for the benefit of the audience as well here that you know the important lesson out of this conversation really is to a the lessons here is a reframe the context of the situation, and secondly, believing in oneself that you have the mental aptitude and the abilities to handle it, and third. You know, looking at failures or setback as not as personal failures, but an opportunity to learn and grow so that, you know, of course, you're focusing on your strengths because that's where your greatest successes lie. But, you know, having those uh, failure moments really make sure that when you focus on them, it doesn't become a limitation or doesn't get in the way of your successes. So you bring it to an acceptable level so you can, like, really enhance your uh, success moments. And I totally uh, like the concept of debrief. I mean, if there was one process that I've consistently used for my own life that has really yielded some massive growth and development and learning is doing the debrief process. And this I learned very early on from one of my professors at uh, my undergrad uh, school. And, uh, you know, that's been the process I've followed consistently. Uh, you know, regardless of, uh, it could be a sm trivial thing as giving a speech after a speech, or it could be, uh, uh, you know, having a conversation, or it could be anything related to that I know is an opportunity 
for growth and development. So that's such a great point. Uh, that brings up another question. Uh, you mentioned that uh, you know you had an opportunity to travel uh, the globe, and so my question to you is: uh, Were there any particular favorite places that you've been to that uh, you really enjoyed? Anything comes to mind? Oh boy, so many, so many places. At the beginning of this year, I uh, I had an opportunity to go to Tokyo, and I've uh, had several day meetings there. Really enjoyed ourselves uh, in in the meetings and and in all the the life uh, the nightlife of Tokyo afterwards, uh, including some uh, some karaoke, which uh, I'm not prone to do normally. But uh, hey, when you're in Tokyo, you have to do some karaoke. So that was <laughs> that was pretty fun. Uh, on the one day that I got off, uh, had for free, had free. I I took the bullet train to Kyoto and experienced several of the temples there. Kyoto is is full of temples. And it was fantastic. It was just uh, it, it was a, a spiritual exercise to to walk through Kyoto, and, and I did a fair amount of walking. I probably walked ten miles that day. Took the bus a little bit, but uh, really um, uh, enjoyed and learned uh, by going through the shrines there. Uh, one in particular I remember was uh, what they called going into the womb, and it was a it was a shrine where. You uh, you walk down some, a staircase into total blackness, and you feel your way through. There is a, l- a little bit of a rope that you can use to guide yourself, and you go through sort of a maze, and eventually there is a, a stone with a solitary light illuminating it, and uh, you touch the stone, and and you you um, essentially make a wish. Um, and and that is your prayer, and then you retreat and then continue and through total darkness until you eventually get back to to where you started it was It was an amazing exercise to do and and uh something I would recommend to everybody so Kyoto fantastic um, and awesome then, uh, <laughs> I just yeah mm-hmm, yeah. No, that that's so great. And then uh, uh, moving on to our uh, next section, and this is uh, you know some questions that we have received from our audience, and I, you know, we may not be able to get through all of them, but uh, the one question I do want to ask you is, uh, which is, you know, you you've been doing uh, learning and teaching and development, and also giving uh, speeches uh, for many many years now. And what do you think is the art of creating an impactful speech and delivering a message or a workshop or a training? And how should one prepare and go about it? Wow. You know, Cal, I haven't uh, completely cracked the code on that, but I'm, but I'm an eager student of that. And, and speaking is, uh, is a fantastic skill to, to hone. You know, it's interesting when I think of, of public speaking in a variety of places, uh, speaking to a lecture hall, a classroom, speaking to a group, like speaking to a group that you're trying to motivate, speaking to a group that you're just trying to, to educate or, or inform about something, it, it has struck me for some time that there is an element of acting within that. And what I mean by that is that you think about something like the dramatic pause, or various intonation, voice modulation, um, certain hand gestures, or, or body gestures and movements, the way you walk around, the way you, um, the, 
different ways to to communicate with your audience. And I really think that that there that there's an element of acting there. And and so you might say, well, but if it's acting, is it really is it really authentic? Is it disingenuous to be acting? And I say no. If you can't wake up your audience, if you can't get them to focus their attention on on the message, then you've lost them. So you need to do whatever you can to to attract that, to get that attention from them. Now, I'm not saying to do things purely for the sake of uh, of uh, of um, you know you, you don't want to do novel or or um, I don't know contrived exercises on stage, but there are there are legitimate ways through the use of voice and gesture and, and, and movement that you can, can keep your audience riveted. Um, I think also there's a, there's a certain amount of energy that you have to project uh, to your audience. And, 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 and really, I think when it all comes down to it, the best speakers are the ones that are really enjoying themselves on the stage. And I think that enjoyment, that level of enjoyment of the subject matter transcends and, and comes through to, to the student. They see that, and, and I think they learn from it, uh, whether they're in a class or, or in a business environment. Yeah, no, that's such a great point. And, uh, you know, I'd, I'd learned from one of the masterful trainers out there, Tony Robbins, uh, who does a lot of workshops and seminars. And, you know, he has got a couple of key uh, philosophies that he kind of keeps in mind, uh, you know, and one is like, you know, he's got this formula of E3, which is educate, entertain, and elevate because, you know, uh, you know, he, he leads workshops or seminars. I think it's like 50 hours, uh, on a weekend, on Friday, Saturday, Sunday. And so, you know, to have those uh, students really excited about, uh, the education that he's, uh, imparting for three, uh, days in a row. I mean, that's really not easy thing to do. So, you know, he's, uh, he's really become masterful at that. And I think the other point you bring up is, you know, the element of performance in acting, because uh, in today's day and age, the attention span of the audience is so limited. And if you lose your audience, you know, you can't communicate that message. So, you know, performance based tactics are definitely, I think, in my opinion, uh, are absolutely needed. Uh, to uh, make sure that you hook the audience and make to communicate your message early on. So, uh, great points. Uh, moving on to our next section, and this is a rapid-fire round, and uh, essentially I'm going to ask you a bunch of fun questions, Eric, and it's the first response that comes to your mind. And, of course, if you want to elaborate on it, please feel free to do so. But, again, this is a rapid-fire round, and are you ready, Eric? Okay. I'm ready. All right. So the first question is, Who's your favorite music band? Led Zeppelin. Uh, Loved them since I was a kid, and I still listen to them today. <laughs> Stairway to heaven. I like that. Okay, the next question is, let's say, Eric, we had a hypothetical situation here. We are a time machine. And if you could go back in time and talk to your young self, what advice would you give him? Uh, I would just simply say, I I would actually say, and this is something I, I work on all the time, I would say, be present. Be in the here and now. 
be present with others right now. Don't be thinking about spending a lot of time thinking about what you're going to do in, in one hour, five hours, ten hours, ten days. Don't be thinking about the, the thing you just did and dwelling on the past. Just, just stay in the present. I know it sounds trite, but uh, if, if, we could, if you could only do that, No, I like that. I really like that. It's uh, it reminds me of that saying by Ram Das who said, "Be here now and be elsewhere later." <laughs> uh, this, that yeah. is great. Now, what is your definition? Uh, having seen the ebb and flow of life, having been to uh, you know you've traveled in your life and you know been part of different organizations. At this point in your career and your life, what would you say is your definition of a successful life or a good life? I think I think success has to be well. There's there's two kinds of success. Uh, I've, I've recently finished a book uh, by a, an author named Richard Rohr. He's a Catholic priest, and he wrote a book called Falling Upward, and it's about the two halves of life. And he says, in the first half of life, you're busy trying to make your get your image. You're trying to make money. You're trying to prove who you are. You're trying to get established, but it's all about you. And in the second half of life, you know, that stuff just doesn't matter. You've, you've, you've formed yourself. You've, you've created this vessel, and now you've got to fill it with something. So what do you fill it with? You know, and, and I think you fill it with what you give back. You, you, you're going to give back to the, to the community. You're going, to form, you're going to be an essential part of that community, and you're going to live a life of service. So that's, 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 that's what I think. That's uh, beautiful. I really like that. And uh, that brings up another question. What books have you gifted or reread over the years? Any recommendations for our audience? <laughs> oh, there's some great ones out there. Um, if you're really in for a challenge, uh, go read James Joyce's Ulysses. It's one of fan- fantastic piece of work. Um I would uh, I'm I'm reading a book I've just started one actually I'm about a third of the way through it now called Nonviolent Communication. It's a book that uh Microsoft CEO uh, Satya Nadella had has recommended now I think to to uh, a lot of his senior staff but uh it's it's about how how we communicate with each other and how we have civil discourse in this time of intense uh partisanship in politics and partisanship in our in our own daily lives of people taking extreme views without really getting to know what another person is thinking and why they're thinking and trying to find some common ground and trying to temporarily check your judgment at the door so so that you can really understand uh others and and be compassionate with with where they're coming from No, that's great. And we'll include uh, this in our show links uh, for the benefit of the audience here. And then uh, one other question is, uh, if you could ask God one question, what would it be? Oh, well, one question to ask God. How many licks does it take to get to the center of a Tootsie Roll? <laughs> All right. And then the final question within the rapid fire round, and that is, if you could have any message of your choice on a billboard, what would that be? Ah, uh, boy. You're full of good questions, Cal. <laughs> full of good questions. 
One message on a billboard. You know, or, or your favorite quote or, or your, you know, anything. And, of course, uh, any paragraph, it could be something, you know, very uh, trivial, significant, doesn't matter. So whatever comes to your mind. Yeah, yeah. I, You know, I, I would at this point have to, to try to, to paraphrase, and I think it was Teddy Roosevelt who uh, who talked about people who criticize others who are in the midst of, of the battle, whatever the battle is, it could be, it could be, uh, in politics, it could be in your, in your job, in your company. Um, it could be working for the betterment of mankind. It could be being on the school board, but getting, uh, the flaming arrows and the, 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 um, you know, the, the barbs thrown at you for how you're doing your job. And, and, and Teddy Roosevelt said it, it's, yeah, it's, but it's the people who are on the court who are actually striving and have got the sweat of their brow and they're, and they're bleeding and they're trying. Those are the people who, who really uh, are, 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 uh, are the true heroes. Um, and it's so easy to, for us to, to, to throw barbs at them and, and give them slings and arrows and tell them how, how, how they're not doing their job or how they're doing it wrong. But, uh, but get in the arena, you know, get your hands dirty. If you, if you see something that's, uh, that's not right out there, uh, go make something happen. And, and maybe that would be my, my one-liner. Go, go make something happen. Get on the court and, uh, and apply yourself. No, that's such a great point. And uh, this was awesome. And then moving on to our final section, Eric, and this is I just have lost three questions for you, and that is the first one is what, are, what is your current personal or business passion project? that you're working on and what are you looking forward to in the next six months to a year from now? Mm. Yeah, well, in, uh, in my business pursuit, our, our company is, uh, has been traditionally going back to our, our talk about education earlier. Our company has been traditionally a very lecture based classroom based learning environment, right? You, uh, you sign up for a class, you go to the class. We probably got 75% of, of our learning that's going on that way right now. But some of the most inspired institutions are going to more of a, a 50-50 split, where there's maybe 50% or less time in the classroom and the other 50% uh, around uh, e-learning and, and online learning. And so that's what we're doing right now, and that's, that's what's consuming a lot of my time, is, is to come up with models and examples of what we call blended learning. So you use all the tools at your disposal, not, not just the, the, the lecture room, um, but, but all the other tools that we talked about earlier, whether it be social learning, e-learning, um, learning in the classroom in, in, in cohorts uh, with others, uh, getting practice and, and, and immediate feedback. So that's, uh, and, and it's, uh, it's a tough thing because uh, our environment, our culture is used to, used to the classroom and, and some of the, Facilitators who've been doing this for years wonder, wow, is my, is my job going away or is it just changing? And I think it is just changing. I think there are new, um, exciting opportunities for people who were formerly um, just lecturers and, and now can be so much more. So that's, uh, that, that's, uh, that's one of my big projects. That's great. And then uh, the next question is uh, three things you're grateful for in life today. Wow. 
the first uh, and foremost, I think, in my life is, is my family. Uh, I have a, a fantastic wife, uh, and I have two incredible children uh, who are, in fact, just this week uh, coming home for Thanksgiving week. Uh, one has been traveling the world, and the other is uh, a sophomore at university. And so that's, that's, uh, that's my number one. Number two, I would say, uh, is my health. I've just been extremely blessed uh, over the course of my life to be in good health. Um, I ran a marathon a couple months ago, and uh, I, I'm, I'm really, um, I don't know, I've, I'm, I've just been, my, my cup runneth over in that. And, uh, and the third, I think, uh, is this fantastic place where, where we live here in the Pacific Northwest of, uh, of Washington State. And, uh, you know, there's really no other place like it. We've got the, some of the tallest mountains uh, in the, and certainly in the country, right outside of our windows on one side. We've got the beautiful Pacific Ocean on the other side, and in between uh, a field of, of green evergreens. And uh, we just couldn't ask for any more than that. That's awesome. And I want to acknowledge you, Eric, uh, for a couple of things here. Uh, one being that, you know, just your insatiable curiosity for life and learning. And I think it started off early on in your life with your the Socratic uh, approach uh, your dad took with you about asking questions. And, you know, it's it's amazing. As I said, it's like good leaders ask good questions. And you've been asking great questions uh, throughout your career. And you continue to do so. Uh, with your learning and development uh, with uh, Ernst & Young and as well as, you know, being part of the community that we are and looking at opportunities, how can I serve and how to be of service to others. And and that's such a great inspiration and you're such a role model for our community that uh, we get to learn so much from you. So thank you for uh, taking the time this evening and uh, being on the show. And uh, is there, this has been really great. Is there anything that I may not have asked you that you would like to share with the audience? No, I, I think uh, you've, you've pretty well explored it all. Well, let me just, let me just share one thing. Um, you mentioned at the very beginning of our talk uh, that, that we met at Toastmasters at the beginning of this year. So I've known you just about a year, Cal. Um, Toastmasters is a wonderful organization. It has taught me so much. Now, yes, I have, I have lectured and I have taught and I have, I have given speeches for years to various groups, but I think Toastmasters, even for someone like me or like you who have achieved so much in, in public speaking, um, can get a lot out of Toastmasters. We can continue to hone our uh, skills as speakers, and we can give so much more back to, to others who are, are learning to speak and, and are trying to get over stage fright and, and the, uh, the, the fear of getting in front of a large group. And uh, when, when people go through the, the speeches uh, and we watch them uh, uh, transform and we watch their confidence build, it, it's just a wonderful feeling. And uh, I would recommend Toastmasters to, to anybody. That's so great. And then one final question, and this is how we wrap up all our interviews, and that is, why do you think people should listen to the wisdom of friends? I think people do have stories to tell, and they're wonderful stories. And we can learn a lot, and we can learn about some, some interesting differences between the stories of others, and we can also learn incredible uh, similarities we have from people around the world. So uh, 
yeah, I, I love the stories, and I, and I look forward to listening to, to more on your show. Great. And then again, appreciate the feedback. Again, thank you so much for your time and uh, candid answers and truly valued our conversation this evening. So, and for those of us who are listening, with that, we'll wrap it up. And if you like what you heard, please share. Don't be shy. Thanks for listening to the Wisdom of Friends show with Cal Aras. If you like what you just heard, we hope you'll pass along our web address, theglobalcontribution.com. To your friends and colleagues, be sure to check out our archive section on our website for previous episodes. This has been a Seven Symphonies production. Join us next time for another edition of the Wisdom of Friends.